Welcome to episode 56 of the Christian Feminist Podcast, Christian Perspectives on Divorce. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Blake Miller. Hi. There. Hi. And we're going to just do a real quick introduction of ourselves before we move on. I'm Katie Grubbs. I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas, and I, uh, I'm also enjoying this semester teaching Bible study for the first time at church which has been a totally different challenge from teaching freshman um, college students because I'm teaching my own friends. <laughs> uh, so it's a little bit intimidating, but it's been super, super fun. And uh, also with uh, my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast, I have three very rambunctious children. Victoria? Thanks, Katie. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I currently live in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Um, I work in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota at Public Radio International. Uh, it's a pretty crazy time to work at a news organization right now, so I am Ooh. really busy. And uh, I, I try to not pay attention to the news when I am home because sometimes I get a little overwhelmed. <laughs> Uh, and I am yeah yeah and I'm married to Michael Farmer also of the Christian Humanist podcast thanks Blake hi there uh, I'm Blake Miller I'm currently living in Atlanta Georgia and working as a chaplain for the Emory Healthcare System uh, educated in a master's of divinity over at Abilene Christian University in Abilene Texas uh, and I'm actually engaged to be married to my sweetheart so this uh this uh topic was very useful for me, I guess, just as a primer and a, maybe a ward. Thanks, Blake. And we just wanted to begin today by um, talking just a little bit about why we chose to cover this topic at this time. And I'm actually going to let Victoria cover that for just a moment before we move on. Uh, so a few months ago, we got a listener email from someone um, who is going through the divorce process personally and, and wanted us to talk about it. Um, we're not going to be specific about who she is or what her situation is, um, just because we don't want to give too much away since it's a sensitive situation. Um, but if that person is listening, um, thank you for trusting us to cover this topic. I, I think we feel um, a little inadequate to do that since none of us have, have been through uh, divorces ourselves, though we have all been touched by divorce. Um, but thanks so much for your trust in us. Uh, we hope this helps you. We've been praying for you these past few months, and uh, thanks again for writing in. And as Victoria said, um, it's definitely a, an issue that's kind of touched everyone's lives, and I think it would be hard to find someone now in, uh, in society today who hasn't been touched in some way by, by the concept or, and by the institution, not institution, um, by the, uh, the happenings of divorce. And to, to start with that, we would just kind of like to talk about our own backgrounds just a little bit, because as Victoria said, none of the three of us have been divorced, but um, we have had experience in other ways. And we just wanted to give a little bit of background so that listeners, you can know kind of where we're coming from before we get down to some more kind of academic perspectives. Um, and Victoria is actually going to lead off for us in that area. Uh, yeah, so my parents are divorced and have been since I was eight. Um, I, I can remember the day they told me that they were getting divorced like it was yesterday. I'm not sure I'll ever forget it. Like, I remember the outfit I was wearing. Um, I remember the food that we were eating. Uh, a new Chinese restaurant had just opened uh, in our town, and I did not eat pork fried rice after that for years. Uh, so I, I was sort of scarred um, by that moment and picked that thing to latch onto. But um, for me personally, once I 
kind of got over the shocking change that that divorce brings to your life, you know, because when you're a kid, your family is one way and then it's not. Um, Once I got over that uh, just shock of change and uh, realized that my parents didn't really have a good marriage, that their relationship the way it was wasn't beneficial to them or to our family, um, and sort of started working through that, uh, I realized that, you know, they were better apart than together. Um, But then in my adult life, I definitely had some struggles, especially when Michael and I started dating and getting serious and talking about marriage. I thought, like, what if I can't do this because I don't know how, you know? Like, what if the models, though I, I knew a lot of people who had strong marriages, other adults in my life, Um, that I sought to emulate, like, what if the model wasn't close enough to me and I didn't absorb it? Um, So I I kind of was really afraid of that for a long time. Um, We had to work through it in our premarital counseling and and later, too. Um, But I I feel much stronger, uh, gosh, almost eight years into marriage now that, that, you know, even though marriage is tough work, I'm, I'm less afraid of that than I used to be. So that's that's my experience in a nutshell. Thank you so much, Victoria. Blake, how about you? Uh, yeah, my parents got divorced when I was 12. Uh, before that, when I was in first grade, so about seven years old, my mother separated uh, from my father for a while, and that was and very traumatic for me. Uh, just I remember my mother specifically telling me not to tell my first grade teacher that my parents were separated and just completely you know, betraying that rule because I needed to tell somebody because it was eating me alive and it was painful for me. Um, my parents, she would say, my mother would say they should not have gotten married uh, and and they did not thrive together as a couple. And uh, But of course, as Christians, they both kind of had this notion of, are we allowed to do this? Are we allowed to divorce? Um, and my father's idea was just that that would absolutely not happen. I actually remember us being at a uh, at the dining room table eating dinner and we prayed beforehand and my mother prayed that they would get divorced, that the process would happen and be expedited. My father cut in to say, to pray to God, please let them not get divorced. And I, if I, I don't know if I actually did say something or if just in the you know 20 years of thinking about that event and maybe wishing I would have done or said something differently. I have in my head this idea of me interjecting and saying, no, please let them get divorced because I don't want to hear this anymore. Uh, so, oh you know, <laughs> the idea of that's so uh, hard faith and, you know, the, the non-institution of divorce is, is something I carry with me. And I also have both thought myself um, in relationships and in my current relationship and also talked to other people who are children of divorce and said things like, you know, my husband and I, or my wife and I, were talking, and they said, we're definitely never going to get married. And me, being a child of divorce, said, well, I'll give it you know, a college try. And so, yeah, it definitely is something that really shakes you and shakes your confidence in, in whether you're capable of doing better, I guess you could say, than your parents did. Even if better, I would say, is probably not the right word to use, because I do believe in some cases that divorce is what, what is best for us. Thanks so much, you guys, for sharing. Um, I, I kind of had experience of divorce growing up at, at, at a, a, a little bit of a greater remove because my parents have always been married um, since they were 18. Um, they got married really, really young and are still married today. And But my dad, um, when, he was a, when he was a young teenager, right around the time, actually, he started dating my mom. Um, and I don't think it's an accident that she was in his life. I think, I think God placed her there, um, as a comfort, but, um, his parents went through a really acrimonious divorce driven by one, one partner's infidelity, Mm. um, which, and, and I, I mean, I should say my grandparents are never going to listen to this. So (laughs) just for the sake of clarity, um, my dad's mom cheated on my dad's dad and they divorced. I think my dad was about 14. This is the other thing is I, there's a lot of details I don't necessarily know because he doesn't like to talk about it, understandably. Um, but they both then remarried my grandmother to the man she cheated with who became my step grandfather. 
Um, and then my dad's um, dad got married to um, a lady who was widowed, who's my Mimi. Um, and so as a kid, it, all of that was kind of in the background. It's like my dad's whole side of the family actually was characterized by that because they had split up and remarried. My dad then um, had who um, had two siblings and then three step siblings, all but um, all of those six kids, except for my dad and one other uncle, they've all been divorced. I have an uncle who's on wife number four. Um, I have an aunt who's on husband number three. So it was always there kind of hanging out and so you know we had these huge family gatherings with a million people and we had aunts who would be around for two or three years and then they would be gone and we would wow. never see them again and, um i mean yeah so it was always kind of <laughs> i know right um it was always kind of there in the background and and it's a hard thing as a kid to think too because you know we were we learned in church that it's you're not supposed to divorce marriage is supposed to be forever but at the same time then you're a kid and you think things like okay but you know if if my dad's parents hadn't split up then my, my step-grandma, my dad's um, dad's wife, she would never have come into our lives, and she's completely wonderful. Like, mm -hmm. So it's hard, you know, it's hard to think, like, that way of, you know, which, and I think, you know, that that's another example, too, of how God can take something negative, right, and bring something positive. Right. But um, that was just, for, for that, you know, and it was weird, too, though, because in, in the rest of my life, you know, I didn't know, I had one friend at school whose parents were divorced. That was it. And I mean, I went to public school. I wasn't in like a tiny little, you know, sequestered Christian school. But I, I mean, my friend Meredith, when we were kids, she was the only person I knew with two phone numbers mm. because she, her mom's number and her dad's number like that. And so to have no friends in that situation, but then this whole kind of family background of so much divorce and, um, and, uh, and remarriage and all the time happening, it was just, it was kind of always there in the background. And, um, now, you know, still, I mean, it's still there, you know, because all those same family members are still part of our lives. And I think just watching my dad, I think it gave him, you talked about how, you know, you wonder if you can go the distance with marriage because you didn't have the models. I think he probably did worry about that. And I think in him, it became this determination to get it right, right. you know, and to provide a stable environment. Because that's another thing I think that was my mom's house was that for my dad. His house was such a place of contention at that point because the divorce was so fresh when they first got together that he could go be at my, my mom's house with her parents where it was very quiet and um, which I mean, and you know, um, their family wasn't perfect either. But I mean, it was a place that was steady, you know, so I think he he and my mom really tried to provide that kind of steadiness for us. And so um, and interestingly, then, you know, I grew up met my husband David his family has a similar kind of similar situation because David's parents have always been married but one of his sets of grandparents divorced and so his dad was also a, a child of divorce though in his case it was a even a, a, a more dramatic situation of he his parents split up when he was a little kid and he didn't see his dad again until he was an adult wow. His dad like moved away and, and remarried and started a different family. And then um, after David's parents got married, when they were newlyweds, he met his dad for the first time since he was like five. Um, and, you know, now has actually now has a good relationship with him. That's a crazy story. Um, but so so, yeah, so it's always been kind of there in the extended family milieu, I guess, as it, as it were. Um, and I kind of, so we got really, really personal to start with just because we wanted listeners to you have you to have some idea where we're coming from. But what we're going to do now is we're going to just dive right into some of the Bible passages that are often referenced um, whenever we're, uh, whenever divorce is being talked about kind of in church circles. And Blake's going to summarize from that, summarize that for us before we move on to some discussion. So I'm just going to throw it right over to Blake. All right. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the the Bible's treatment of divorce, uh, you might say it, it doesn't go into as great detail as we might like if we wanted to use the Bible as a handbook, which might be not something, which might, you know, be purposeful uh, that it didn't want to be used in that way. But there are a few passages uh, in the New Testament that speak to the idea of divorce, and I want to go through some of them. Uh, first, I want to hit at probably the big one from the standpoint of the Gospels. That's Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 2 through 12, which is almost completely parallel in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12. So I'm going to run through Mark 10 really quick, uh, beginning in verse 2. It says, And Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
He answered them, this is being Jesus, of course, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, their disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Um, and that's Mark's idea from Jesus's perspective on uh, divorce, as the Pharisees would have him talk about it. That passage takes place in a string of passages about discipleship. So it really casts marriage as one aspect of discipleship in the Christian's life and does not really give it a, an all-important status that you might think about if you just read that passage on its own. He casts divorce as an example of hardness of heart, and so those who follow Jesus are called to a higher standard of faithfulness in marriage that's more permanent than what um, the Jewish people would have thought about at that time. And in fact, some people have said, if you're not thinking of divorce as a tragedy, even as it's happening for you, you might be doing it for the wrong reasons. So you have to keep in mind in this frame of thought that divorce was very much an option for Jews at the time. The only question was what were the acceptable grounds for divorce? Uh, and when he talks about a certificate of divorce, it was most likely made as a protection for women that allowed them to remarry after being divorced so that they didn't have to have basically a scarlet letter um, attached to them. Uh, but for Jesus, divorce is not a question of rules, but the world in which Christians should live. So it's not a part of God's design for man and woman to join together and then come apart. So it's possible it's good to accept divorce when it's necessary, not subsequent marriages, as we can understand from his becoming one flesh. Uh, and he's also pretty much the first person to state that a man can commit adultery against his own wife, not merely against the husband of the woman he cheat, uh, cheats with. So Mark's vision of divorce is a violation of God's intention, uh, and thus it is within the power of Jesus' disciples to renounce it completely, which is different from the way that the Jewish people of the time would think about it. Now, Matthew's version adds something to Jesus' statement. In, in Matthew's version, uh, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, as the English Standard Version uh, puts it, and marries another, commits adultery. And the Greek word there interpreted as sexual immorality is porneia, which is never really well defined in the Bible. And many theologians and pastors call it like a catch-all term for deviant sexual acts. Um, for instance, it could mean adultery or some nonspecific sexual immorality, that might not be true since divorce on the grounds of adultery was already largely acceptable. So Jesus wouldn't have been speaking so transgressively to the Jewish listeners if he said that. And Matthew is always trying to make Jesus's words as transgressive as possible to the ears of Jewish listeners at the time. Pornea could also refer to uh, premarital unchastity or sex before marriage, but that would be odd because it implies that having had premarital sex is a grounds for divorce, but adultery is not a grounds for divorce. And it could also mean incest, but that would be strange because um, those kinds of marriages, incestuous marriages in the Jewish context, were already illegal, so it wouldn't really need uh, Jesus to, to say that. So... Um, if you think about it from those angles, it kind of becomes such that uh, divorce probably, I mean, excuse me, porneia in this instance probably does mean that kind of catch-all idea of some sort of sexual offense. Moving on from there, uh, another passage that Jesus uses to speak about divorce is Luke 16, 18, which has another parallel in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And in that one, Luke, uh, Luke 16, 18 says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. The new element we see in these passages is that a man divorcing his wife makes her an adulteress, and the person who marries that woman also commits adultery. So that uh, connotes, arguably, that divorce isn't real. 
to Jesus. If you remarry, you commit adultery because you've already been joined to someone. Moving on from there, we can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I won't read uh, that because it's a little big, but uh, really verses 1 through 16 um, all touch on this. Uh, Paul says things like, I wish all were as my, I myself am, meaning single, um, and to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them to remain single. Uh, to the married, the wife should not separate from her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. There was nothing like what we would call separation in this time period. Separation at this point would have just been divorce. So the idea of leaving for a time to work on things would have been pretty largely unheard of at this time. Um, and so from the context of this, these passages, it would seem that the only kind of divorce that Paul accepts is that of an unbelieving spouse separating from the Christian spouse. The big idea to summarize in all of these texts is that marriage is designed to be a lifelong commitment and all divorce is an exception to that. It's not just another option. Mark and Luke don't offer any qualifications allowing for divorce, but Matthew and Paul uh, treat it as having exceptional circumstances. And what's really interesting to me is that no text appeals to love or a lack of love to be a grounds of divorce. I just don't love him anymore is not something that these people, that Jesus or Paul, would have understood as uh, a good reason to get divorced. Um, nowadays, some churches are so rigid that you'd say there's no good reason for divorce, and other churches, most churches, I would argue, are so lax that divorce just becomes something that they can find to be necessary, kind of however they want. Um, but if marriages a covenant before God, then divorce is breaking that covenant. And that mean, doesn't mean that divorce is never the right option, as we can see from Matthew and Paul telling us that, but there are a lot of popular divorce scenarios um, that, that are not covered, that we wish kind of would be spoken to more about continuing, or excuse me, uh, potentially domestic violence or emotional abuse or anything like that. And that's about it. Thank you so much. That was that was awesome. So uh, such a good kind of primer to move on to the next bit that we're going to talk about, which in um, our readings for today, um, we read a chapter that I'm going to summarize in a moment from a, a complementarian text about kind of marriage and family practices. And then um, Victoria is going to lead us through a Christianity Today article here in a bit. But um, I just wanted to, um, to go through and uh, the chapter that uh, first chapter we read for today is uh, a chapter from a book called God, Marriage, and Family, Rebuilding the Biblical Foundation, and by a guy, Andreas J. Kostenberger, and, who is a professor of New Testament. And it's um, just full disclosure, listeners, it's a complementarian text. Um, so just, you know, if you are egalitarian, just keep in mind that this is coming from a slightly different perspective. Um, but one of the reasons that I chose this reading is because it is um, pretty, ex pretty, um, I guess, pretty uh, clear on a lot of the stuff that Blake has just mentioned in the sense of just presenting, here's what's in the text, here's how it kind of compares to some other things um, that were operating at the time, some other beliefs about divorce. Um, and the, the chapter in question is called Separating What God Has Joined Together, Divorce and Remarriage. And Kostenberger kind of looks first at uh, kind of the foundational text in Jesus' time, what one of the foundational texts would be, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, which talks about divorce. And he also points out that it's interesting that when Jesus talks about divorce, one of the first things Jesus does is takes it all the way back to Genesis 2. So he doesn't start with the Mosaic law that the Pharisees were probably wanting to talk about, but rather takes it back to the beginning and um, reinforcing that creation ideal of uh, that it's not meant to be separable, that it's not just another option. Um, and one of the things that um, Kostenberger does is he takes Jesus, and Jesus' ideas about divorce is expressed in Matthew and some of these um, in Luke. Um, and he sets it against two kind of predominating views at the time, one much more liberal and one much more conservative, so that um, the the more conservative um, more conservative view is Shammai, which I'm ho I hope I'm saying right. That's the kind of more conservative school. 
and um and one of the ways that these different schools of thought differed is in their understanding of what that word porneia meant um, or what, what that idea, um, what were the reasons why you could divorce your wife so that the more conservative school at the time would see it as being okay to have a divorce if there's immodest behavior or sexual immorality. Um, that would be versus the other school of thought, which was Hillel, which was much more liberal. And in that case, they would have said that any instance where a wife did something displeasing to her husband, she could be divorced and that would be okay. Katie, um, and yes, uh, just no, no. Yeah, do okay. it. Uh, porneia is the Greek word that is used in uh, Matthew. Uh, I think in, in terms of Deuteronomy, what we're thinking of is the, the Hebrew phrase erwat dabar, which could be yes, okay. either some indecency or something indecent. Um, and that could be, depending on if you want to take those together, that can be a certain, have a certain meaning. But if you want to separate those two words and not put them together in a phrase, that could potentially have a different connotation. No, th and thank you for correcting me on that, because I think I was alighting those two in part because I was looking at a chart that um, he's using this chapter where he does that. And I, and even though I had read how they were talked about differently, I was forgetting that part. So I'm really glad you made that clarification sure. so that I didn't um, lead our listeners into a confused state. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, uh, the differing kind of points of view and, 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 and the kind of the famous, I guess, example that he gives in this reading of that kind of, you can divorce for any reason is the idea that a wife could set his a husband could set his wife aside if she like burned the dinner. Like that was the kind of famous example of you could divorce for whatever reason you want. Um, and because as Blake said, it was very much an option. It was not something that was would have been thought of as outrageous. Where Jesus differs then is that he um, he doesn't. Well, for one, um, he he obviously is not saying that it's okay to divorce your wife if she burns the dinner, and. Um, he does in Matthew, only in Matthew, which is, um, Kostenberger points out, and that's worth remembering, Jesus makes the exception for adultery. Um, and that's the, the, the verse that uses porneia. Um, one thing that Kostenberger points out that I think is interesting is that he points out that at Jesus's time, divorce in the case of adultery was actually, would have been thought of by both of those other schools of thought as required. Um, and that Jesus seems to be saying that it is it, it can be permitted. Divorce is permitted for adultery. So Jesus is kind of leaving some space there for some kind of reconciliation or for a, a maintenance or a keeping of marriage whole, even in the case of adultery, which is interesting. Um, I didn't know that before I read this, that they, you know, um, would have thought that it should be required um, for for adultery. The other thing that Jesus does that's different is um and blake mentioned this too is that um, jesus is extending the application of the standard for divorce and remarriage to men and women whereas before it would only have been applicable to men so that's another place where jesus is um, differing from prevailing views at the time and um but it, it's also worth pointing out that in many ways the way that jesus talks about marriage is in fact is is more transgressive more different um as we said before, than any the ways that any other Jews were talking about divorce at the time, and um, Kostenberger kind of expands this out, and he kind of extends into a discussion of then how we might interpret porneia nowadays is going to lead into our own views about divorce or remarriage, and he kind of breaks it down into basically there's kind of three schools of thought maybe now on if divorce is okay or not. Again, keep in mind, listeners, he's talking about kind of within the complementarian church, I would imagine. Um, but he talks about how there's the kind of divorce and remarriage are both okay school of thought, um, which a person in that case, um, th that view would be understanding pornea to be adultery or sexual, sexual immorality and would say that in the case of those, that it's fine to divorce and it's fine to remarry for the, uh, the innocent party in that case. Um, and lots of people think that way. And he mentions some different um, theologians. The second view would be um, that uh, porneia is some kind of sexual sin, such as adultery. But but then that second view would be characterized by a belief that um, divorce is okay, but remarriage is not. Um, that it's okay to divorce someone for infidelity, but it's not okay to then remarry. 
um, which I should say, I, one of the, I actually had uh, an encounter one time with that view through David, because David said there's an older man at his church um, when he was young, who I think that old man actually was abandoned by his wife. I don't think that she cheated on him and he, he divorced her, but, um, he had experienced a divorce in his younger days, but he never, he would never remarry until his, his ex-wife had passed away years later. And so kind of decades, I think after they had divorced when he was much younger, she finally passed away and then he, he married again. So he obviously held to that view. Um, that it was okay, you know, that the divorce had happened, but that he was not, he didn't feel like it was okay for him to remarry. So, you know, there are definitely people who, who adhere to that view. And then the third view of that particular exception clause, a, a divorce in the case of Pornea, would allow for neither divorce nor remarriage, which obviously is the most, would, we would say is the most extreme um, now. Um, and that um, in that case, um, well, there's all kinds of implications of that, but um, that would be the most extreme view held today that some people adhere to is that um, it's not okay to divorce your spouse, to initiate a divorce from your spouse, even if that spouse has been unfaithful. Um, and if that spouse then abandons you, then you shouldn't seek to remarry either. Um, and that's that's the most extreme. One thing that kind of surprised me about this reading, honestly, given that it's coming from a, a complementarian point of view, is that he says many times that it's important for people who hold different, who hold to those different views to not judge the other people who hold the other views and say that they have a low view of marriage. So Kostenberger says it's important for people who are no divorce, no remarriage people to not judge people who think divorce for the sake of adultery and remarriage are okay. It's it, that you shouldn't judge those people and think, tell them they have a low view of marriage. And that was interesting to me because he kind of seems to I don't know, it's it's almost so even-handed, I think he's almost so trying to present every view that he kind of seems to be saying, whatever you think is cool, which I don't love, because if you're going to say, you know, it's, he almost presents all these different ideas, and he never says, really, which one he would say would be the correct one, but I mean, if we're talking about biblical interpretation, obviously, all the people in each of these different camps, they think they have the right biblical interpretation. And so, you know, I don't think that they're saying, well, but it's cool if you think something different because people who think that divorce and remarriage are okay in cases of adultery probably think the people who say no divorce and no remarriage, that they're incredibly harsh <laughs> and they might think that they have a low view of marriage. So I, that was kind of interesting to me that um, he doesn't really, um, he kind of seems to think that you can take whichever of those roads you want, whichever of those interpretations you want, and that's okay. Um, I thought that was kind of an interesting, I guess, tack to take. Um, one last thing, and then I'll be done summarizing, and we can talk about this, is that um, he ends the chapter with a kind of discussion of the contemporary debate about divorce. And he says that, um, to conclude, um, he wants to offer four parting principles that we trust will help people with who are struggling with divorce, he says, in remarriage. And um, the first thing that he says is that no matter your view of divorce or remarriage, that um, the writers of the book, he had a co-author, they encourage all believers to bear in mind the fact that while divorce and remarriage are life-altering events, even if one were to divorce and remarry sinfully, such action is not to be equated with the unpardonable sin. Basically that even though it creates this huge upheaval in lives, that it shouldn't be treated, people who have been involved in divorce should not be treated as if they are, need to be excommunicated now or something. Um, second, that while... Um, while some Christians may be tempted to just avoid the entire discussion about divorce because it's difficult, that it's important to carefully work through the biblical text on divorce and remarriage and think about that. Um, and uh, he says that the third, that um, while most evangelicals, modern evangelicals, allow for divorce and remarriage in the case of sexual sins, that still, at, you know, invites the question of what to do in the case of non-sexual sins, such as physical or emotional abuse, which we mentioned earlier. He doesn't say anything about that, really. He just throws that out there and says, you know, this is also a question that we need to think about. Um, but I, I do like one thing that he says there. I say he doesn't say anything about it. He doesn't necessarily get down to cases, right? Like, this is okay. This is not okay. This is grounds for divorce. Um, what he does say is that um, in cases where one's life is being endangered by the actions of a sinning spouse, um, we conclude that separation is not only permissible but morally required. Um, but what he does also say is that um, 
it is better to separate in our modern sense, separate, have a separation, not a divorce um, for a time to, um, because he says this would usually produce one of two results. Either the offending party will repent and there could be some kind of reconciliation or often that offending party, if unrepentant, chooses to depart, in which case then the Christian or, you know, the believing spouse or the spouse that has been abused or has been in some way degraded, that person would then not be the one seeking the divorce anyway. But I mean, I don't, trusting to that seems difficult because what if a person who, a spouse who's been abusive refuses to initiate a divorce, him or herself, you know, it just, it's a difficult thing. Um, Particularly and then if you're in an abusive situation anyway, you're probably like, there's probably going to be some emotional or physical or both manipulation happening anyway. So I, I sort of, yeah, oh, I know the emotional equivalent of side eye is to, to that, to that <laughs> passage too. Like, that mm, seems a little bit unsafe to me. Yeah, it's, it's trusting the other person a lot. And I actually said that to David right after I read it, because I, you know, I had said, if you're, if you're a believing spouse with an, an unbelieving spouse, and that unbelieving spouse is the person who has been perpetrating abuse against you, but that person knows that you as a Christian are less likely to initiate divorce, they could use that to, to, your, to, to their advantage, you know what I mean? To, to, to try to keep you, yes, yes. And so, yeah, it's difficult. I, I, I was a little frustrated because he was almost, he, it, was, it was good that he offered, you know, here's all the biblical texts and here's what the words mean and the original languages and here's a chart. But because it's meant to, because he was trying to make it such a, an academic flyover view that um, I wanted him to get down to cases a little bit more, which, and I guess I should say, I'm done summarizing. So let's talk about, I want to hear more about what you guys think. Victoria made a great point to start off with. What else did you guys think about this reading? Uh, I, when I heard him say, you know, you can't uh, judge other people's perceptions of, of, of the rules um, as the Bible puts them, I didn't so much take it as him saying, at the end of the day, do what you want and it's okay. But I, I, I interpreted it more as him saying, don't come from a position of absolute certainty that your interpretation of this is the correct one and anyone who disagrees with you is therefore wrong because we just we oh, can't yeah, sure. really uh, you know, be sure about that at least. Or even if we were, um, we, we're not very good at convincing everybody that everything we think and, and believe is true. But it is weird to see him write so much and never kind of come out with his own personal interpretation of when divorce is okay, except for the one time when if your life is in danger. I I agree. Um, I was a little frustrated by that, too. But I I think we we should be clear that he does draw some lines. I mean, he's, he's not saying whatever you want to believe is okay. Um, one, one thing that he does bring up is the, uh, kind of contemporary modern idea of no fault divorce. And, and that, that is, um, that, that doesn't seem to be biblically endorsed in any way. Um, that, you know, this is always, in whatever circumstance is regrettable, there's always in some sense sin involved. Um, so, you know, no one should think that anyone, uh, no matter what side they're on, if they initiate or don't, if there's adultery or there's not, um, is, is not at fault. But that's evened out by him saying, you know, just because sin exists in this situation doesn't mean it's unpardonable. So I, I think, you know, there, there are some fences here. Yeah. And I, and I should have made clear, I didn't think to say that I should have pointed that out too, that, yeah, you're right. That's, I feel like that's his one big line in the sand is, is the idea of no fault divorce. And I think that that's probably one um, area where the church needs to be way more different from the culture. Um, Cause I think that, you know, in part, because I think the church, nowadays we've absorbed a lot of these ideas from the culture that kind of idolize romantic love and feelings of love and like Blake said earlier the idea of well I just don't love him anymore or he you know or I just don't love her anymore and I think that the church has absorbed a lot of that and I think in part sometimes divorce happen divorces happen in the church too because I think sometimes young people get sold a bill of goods about what marriage is in church and that it's painted as this if you both love Jesus it's going to be like perfect and easy um, and then there's this disillusionment that happens because that's not really what marriage is like. It's very hard and, and you know, at times and very difficult. And so then um, you have, you know, things happen. People want to separate. They feel like, oh, I just have to find God's right spouse for me. 
And so I think, you know, it was good that he brought up that you can't, there's like, I told David too, when, when I was reading this, that when he was talking about no fault divorce is not okay, it made me think of Gwyneth Paltrow's conscious uncoupling. Do you guys remember that? Oh, when gross. she, when she and Chris Martin split up and she said they were consciously uncoupling and it was just so smug and ridiculous, but like, yeah, that, that idea of, you know, it, we have this enlightened, you know, view of marriage. We've realized we're not right for each other, so we're just going to positively separate that. That's never okay if you're a Christian. You might as that well that's call not it an artisanal divorce at that point. I think <laughs> you know, non-GMO, <laughs> organic, fair trade divorce. My favorite thing yes. about that is that right after that announcement happened, Chris Martin went and took their kids to some fast food joint and let them eat a bunch of horrible food. <laughs> what? I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, but probably also makes me a bad person. No, I think that's hilarious. So I, I'm right there with yeah, you. I can only see, see that as a ceremonial act of, I mean, uncoupling from maybe a, world <laughs> or a lifestyle or something that he's no longer going to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, is there anything else about this that you guys wanted to, to bring up before we move on to the next reading? He spends a little bit of time. And uh, just a couple of lines uh, about talking about the the notion that if if you're not the person who committed the the adultery uh, and didn't quote unquote cause the divorce, then you're free to uh, remarry. Let me see if I can. Yeah, those with divergent opinions of First Corinthians seven fifteen should remember that those who do have freedom to remarry are not espousing a low physical view. You know that in contrary to the biblical text and. It's funny to me that he says that because um, he he gives these three different ideas for uh, whether divorce and remarriage are okay, and he goes through all three of them. Neither are okay, both are okay, and you know you can divorce but you can't remarry. And then it almost seems like he undercuts that by saying, "But you know, if if you're not the one who sinned, then of course you can remarry. You know, that's not even a question." So to me, I I believe that a lot of people read the Bible, read what Jesus and Paul say about divorce, and arrive inevitably, whether they want to or not, at the idea that um, you can really interpret, that, that both say, if your first marriage didn't work out, then you don't get a second one. Um, and, you know, that is just an, that is an interpretation, and it might not be the, the correct one, but it, it seems like he, he decided later on in, in his same, uh, you know, chapter of this book that that's not a, a valid interpretation. I see what you mean about that. It's it's a little bit of of waffling, I guess. Um, and I mean, and who knows? Maybe even a little bit of him him being influenced by the culture too. You know, because you're right. I mean, I think there absolutely are people out there who hold to that. You know, no remarriage if divorce rule. I know when um, David's uh, David's sister, her husband, um, his first wife abandoned him and and their children. And then later he got married to David's sister. But I know that David's parents had some very close friends who did not come to her wedding because not because, I mean, they loved her, but they felt like that they would be endorsing, you know, something that was wrong because her husband had been married before and his previous wife was still alive. And so it's definitely a belief that's, that's out there. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that perhaps maybe is, is more prevalent even than some, some people might realize. Right. I feel a tension even in myself as I talk about this because, I, I, you know, going through the Bible verses that, that weigh pretty heavily and, and, and at the very least, um, you know, aren't too kind to the idea of I just don't love him anymore. And so might be saying things that people uh, that certain people don't want to hear. Is, is is a tension for me, but at the same time, you know, if if we are treating marriage as a covenant we make with God, then then that necessarily should have some pretty intense ramifications. And also, also worth remembering too, I think that there are, there are probably many people in the church today who, um, if if they haven't been given a a good kind of foundation of, of biblical study or have never been taught to study them their Bibles for themselves. There could be people in the church today who have been divorced, who had like might have no idea of what the Bible actually says about divorce because if they were in churches that, that never talked about it because it's hard, all those stuff we said before, you know, then they might not um, have ever given it any thought. And then, you know, could potentially find themselves already divorced already in a second marriage and then read these things and think, well, okay, 
how come nobody in the church ever mentioned this to me? What, what do I believe about this? I'm already, you know, it's already happened in my life. I think it is, I think Kostenberger's not wrong that it's problematic to never think about this and never talk about it until it's already happened. Um, let's, let's go ahead and move on. We don't want to run too long, but so let's, um, move on to a a Christianity Today article that Victoria has chosen for us. And I'm going to let her kind of walk us through that. Thanks, Katie. Um, so I, I wanted to include this article, um, because while, while it's not as theologically heavy or dense as the Kostenberger chapter that we read, I think it does, um, fill in a, a hole that Kostenberger leaves open because it talks about um, abuse, both physical and emotional abuse. Um, it's from December 2011. Um, I think it's an, it's an online reprint of the um, text version of the Christianity Today article called, But He Never Hit Me, a Christian Primer on Emotional Abuse. And um, the the article starts with an anecdote about a woman who um, is abused in her marriage but has a hard time labeling it as such because the abuse is not physical but emotional. And the article details um, a, a flaw in a lot of church approaches to the issue of emotional abuse um, and, and connects that problem to theological belief um, notes that though um, abuse in marriage is is pretty even statistically between uh, people who go to church and people who don't, uh, quote, Christian women are less likely to seek help because many believe the Bible says they must submit to their husband regardless of his behavior. When they do seek help, it is their churches they go to first. Emotional abuse is a particularly sticky topic for Christians committed to the sanctity of marriage. While an increasing number of church leaders will suggest that a woman remove herself from a violent situation, they aren't sure whether the nonviolent forms of abuse marry merit anything beyond the suggestion that she pray and submit. Uh, so the, the article um, goes a little deeper, says emotional abuse is abuse and also characterizes it. Uh, I thought the most interesting um, thing about this article is um, what it said in terms of emotional abuse being a particular kind of sin. Um, I'm quoting again here. Here's the distinction many Christians fail to make. Emotional abuse is not a relational problem, a symptom of an unhealthy marriage, although it can certainly cause both of those. It is a heart problem stemming from the abusive person's unchristlike drive to attain and maintain dominance. Emotional abuse is a habitual sin that seldom goes away on its own, and the church needs to treat it accordingly. Uh, so... Though, though this is not, as I said, um, as theologically dense as the previous reading, I really appreciated uh, the the definitions in this article. I really appreciated that it labeled emotional abuse um, not just as sin, but as habitual sin, that it's about manipulation and domination, um, and that that kind of control is, is clearly anti-biblical, clearly not... Um, in in Christ's design for marriage. So I, I wanted to include this article in this episode because I, I feel like it's uh, it's good and and necessary. So that's that's my summary. Um, what did you guys think about the Christianity Today piece? I'll say one thing. I I was touched by some of uh, what is detailed in in that article itself regarding the kind of abuse this woman experienced. She literally says, I had things broken around me, threats made to me, emotional games played on me, a knife held to my throat, a gun held to my head. Um, And then later on it says, you know, maybe this isn't emotional abuse, I'm not sure. I wanna make something clear. I went online just to check this. And if if somebody has a law degree, they might can tell me I'm wrong. But as for, for now, this is what I think I found. If you hold a knife to someone's throat, that's not just abuse. It's definitely abuse. It's also the crime of assault. If you put a gun to someone's head, you've committed felony assault. You can go to prison for that. And so the idea that we might, in the church or any church, um, 
not take that as extremely serious is frightening and irresponsible. And so my idea is we need to help people who are being sinned against. And that may very well be the wife of someone in your church. Yeah, I I really, really agree. And I I think that something else that I think I've been seeing lately, which I think is really positive, is I think there have been some voices lately, um, particularly on the complementarian side, because I think it's it's a much bigger problem on that side of women being encouraged to hope something changes instead of, you know, um, stepping away, but that, um, that it's, it's really important to not see abuse in a marriage as merely a church matter or merely a, um, like Victoria said, not merely a relational problem, but in some cases as a crime, as Blake just said, depending on what's happened. Um, and to, um, to see it as something that is, um, not, not just in the wife's power to control. I mean, that's the thing too, is if, if what you say, which, and, and, and thankfully, I think, again, it depends on who you read. Most, I think most complementarian theologians would say that it, um, it's, it's definitely not incumbent on a wife to submit to her husband if he is in sin, whatever the sin is, that she's not supposed to follow her husband into sin or to condone sin. Um, people who say that, um, a woman should submit no matter what are actually, I would say are authoritarians or patriarchal kind of people in, um, complementarian disguise. But, um, so that, you know, it's, it's never incumbent on a wife to follow her husband into sin. And that's, um, that's why I think Victoria's right. It's so important. And the writer of the article so right that it needs to be recognized as a habitual sin so that it's not just, well, um, I know I said that the other day, but I'm totally sorry for that. Um, and can we move on please? When, you know, if the pattern is such that the exact same thing's going to be happening again in a week anyway, it's not enough to just try to deal with that one moment, Um, you know, and that, and I actually think that if the church did a better job of helping um, women or men, I mean, that's the thing too, it's important to say too, is that um, this particular article focuses on a woman, but I think particularly emotional abuse um, is, is something that happens, um, on both sides, even more than physical abuse, but that if the church could do a better job of helping people in that situation, there might be maybe some fewer divorces in the church because, you know, if you have women who, or men, um, but often women who feel like they can't, they're not going to be believed or they can't say anything about a kind of emotionally abusive situation until they just can't do anything but leave. Um, that's a totally different situation than if you have, if you have church leaders, if you have people, alongside that that spouse who's in that um emotionally abusive situation every step of the way attempting to um bring to a realization of the wrong of the sin on the part of the other spouse you know if if there's if there's efforts made if if church authorities are willing to believe a person in that situation and to try to help as much as they can to try to help the other partner i mean if both partners are professing christians and that's the other problem too is that if you have um a woman who's seeking help from her church because she's in that situation and her husband is not does not profess faith and it's not going to do much good for her church leaders to say well you just need to appeal to his to his you know his faith or i mean that's not that's not even a factor there and so um you know aside from praying for him to you know have a change of heart what is she supposed to do so it's a difficult thing and and i i think that um i appreciated you victoria Giving, picking this reading for us because I think it's something that we pretty much never talk about in the church and it's something that thankfully is getting a little bit more notice now. Um, I'd like to add since you just mentioned um, the the idea of the um, sort of abused believer married to an unbeliever um, I have heard stories from from other people mostly other women um, that one of the passages that we referred to earlier, the the first Corinthians passage, being sort of twisted against them to manipulate them to stay in abusive relationships, the idea that the unbelieving husband is is being sanctified through the wife, um, and and that if if he's willing to stay in the relationship, then she should stay. Um, sort of being a, a justification for remaining in an abusive relationship too. Um, and I, I don't think that's what the passage is, is saying at all. So I, I wanted to be clear about that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting 
but I, well, maybe this is just, maybe I've just been fortunate enough to be in, in churches that wouldn't kind of twist it that way. But I, that would never even occur to me, I guess, because I've always taken that, me- that passage to kind of mean, hey, women who've, who've, accept- or men who've accepted Christianity and your spouse hasn't, that doesn't mean it's okay for you to leave that person just because they don't believe, you know, that just because they don't have the same beliefs. It would never occur to me to, to, to turn it to that, I guess, to that more kind of abusive side and say, you know, no matter what you shouldn't, you know, uh, or you don't leave your unbelieving spouse. That, um, is, that's really intense. Yeah. yeah I, I haven't heard, heard that. that, that reading in, in a church that I have been in, but I've talked to people who have said that reading has been delivered to them. Yeah. So have I, people who have, who have said, uh, that he will notice that you're loving him through his mistakes and then that will co- cause him to repent. And, you know, I don't doubt that that might happen or has happened sometimes, but to put yourself in, in so much danger in some cases uh, for that is, I think, ir- it's just irresponsible on the part of the church. And that, that's a good time for the church itself to intervene. And really what it sounds like a lot of these times to me is just the church doesn't want to, or is scared to overstep its own authority and, and go in and say, listen, there's something happening here that cannot continue to happen. And yeah, in many, in some cases, not only because it's against God's law, but because it's a, a crime and, you know, in the American law books as well. And I wanted to just add that I, I mentioned the word wife when I could have and should have used the word spouse as well. That is something we need to be aware of. And I appreciate Katie for, um, for being even handed on that herself. I think too, it's so interesting to me that I feel like there's been this big movement over the last, maybe, I don't know, decade or so. Um, there's been a big focus in the church on trying to help men who are bound or, and I guess women too. Um, but usually though, the kind of marketing wise, usually that stuff is targeted to men and trying to help men deal with pornography, um, and things like addictions to pornography. But I think, you know, it would probably be equally beneficial to maybe, um, talk to people in the church about, Hey, here's what to do. If you find yourself, um, behaving aggressively towards your spouse, here, maybe you need to think about that. And maybe we need to, to think through, you know, um, why that's wrong. <laughs> I, it's just interesting the things that I kind of get, I, I feel like it's definitely true that the kind of sexual sins, I guess, often get all the focus. And um, there are so many things that can happen in a marriage that can be so damaging that um, we would not necessarily consider sexual. And I think I, I, to me, the most interesting thing about this whole article is at the very end, the woman who's been profiled from the beginning says that she felt that um, that had she and her spouse not had she not um, gotten a divorce from her emotionally abusive spouse, that um, there would not have been a space for healing. And so I'm, I'm going to read her words because I, I feel like I can't paraphrase this. Um, it says uh, she puts her painful experiences to good use, sharing her story with advocacy groups, encouraging women who find themselves in the situation she was in 20 years ago. She has made peace with her ex-husband and can speak to him with him in grace instead of fear quote god has done great healing in his wife life as well she says had we not divorced i'm not at all sure that would have been the case not because god couldn't but because the need wouldn't have been acknowledged and healing accepted and i thought that was so interesting that at least in in that situation she felt that the divorce that that kind of you know that big final step of ending the marriage that that happening is what allowed i guess a kind of awakening to the magnitude of the situation on the part of her ex-husband and um and that acknowledgement of wrong i thought that was really interesting that that was kind of how she was seeing it and um in retrospect i guess you know and um after how much time though and we don't get a timeline for that i think so often you know there's this hope i think sometimes that even in and and kostenberger talks a little bit about this when he talks about well you can separate and then you know maybe there'll be repentance or maybe the other person will leave you you know but um sometimes things like that can take years it might take years for an emotionally abusive spouse to realize oh hey and, and there might never be repentance. And I, I think it's also important to remember the difference, too. And I think she talks about this, Victoria. You can correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a difference between remorse and repentance, too. Um, yes. Because often, yes, yes. Um, what, what does she say? Because I couldn't remember exactly what she said about that. Do you maybe remember better than I do? I can find it. Because I think a lot of times we think of those as the same thing, just on a kind of surface level. If we just are thinking about what behaviors might manifest in those, sometimes they look similar, but they're not the same thing. And I can't, if I can't find it. Yeah, I, I can't either right now. I'm sorry. I think, 
No, it's okay. I think I mean just just basically remembering that remorse, I guess, is is more of an emotion, and repentance is an actual turning, right, from from the the sinful behavior. That you know, it might be a common thing for a person who's is physically or emotionally abusive to feel remorse after perpetrating that abuse. But that's not exactly that's not the same thing as then not doing that those things anymore, as turning from that behavior. And I think sometimes in the church. Um, the church might see and go, well, see, there's there's remorse. So, you know, maybe there can be a reconciliation there when really that's the point where, you know, if a church is trying to help someone in that situation, they really need to dig in and try to figure out, okay, is this just remorse or is this actual repentance? Is this behavior cycle going to actually change or is it not? And, you know, because that's the key thing, particularly in a situation that could be dangerous, the one that was described in the article, you know, um, to break it, you know, and the woman in the article said, you know, what had to happen for an acknowledgement of for healing was that the cycle was broken. Um, and in her case, that was, it took a divorce. And so, you know, it was a really interesting perspective to read in this case. I think that's a pretty complete way of putting it, the difference between those two and the need for both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, before we move on to passing on, was there anything else about this that you guys wanted to comment on? I don't think so. I think we've pretty well covered it. Yeah, same here. Well, then in that case, we're going to move on to our final section and um, where we pass on something to our listeners. And I'm going to let you two guys go first. Why don't we start with Blake? Okay. Um, this isn't a, technically a Christian text, but obviously that doesn't mean it can't be useful. Um, I was actually listening to a um, Christian counseling professor give a lecture, and he recommended a book called Hold Me Tight by Dr. Sue Johnson. So I bought it and I was going through a different book myself. So I gave it to my fiance Ellen and she read through it and it is now chock full of little sticky notes, you know, denoting really interesting passages. And she's telling me that it's really great. So I'm putting it on my list. And apparently the, um, the summary is that we all have needs for attachment and fears about having that attachment rejected or being inadequate. And if we don't talk about them, our relationships will suffer. And both the um, Christian counseling professor and my fiance have given it ringing endorsements. So I guess I'm going to check it out and I recommend that you do as well. Thanks, Victoria. How about you? Uh, so I'm going to get historical for a minute and uh, recommend John Milton's uh, 1643 and 1644 series of tracts, The Doctrine and Discipline of Divorce. Um, so Milton published a series of four tracts, tracts anonymously um, after his wife leaves him. Eventually, he signs his name to them. Uh, in these tracts, he tries to convince the government to legalize divorce um, on several grounds. He, he argues that uh, divorce can be psychologically, emotionally, and even spiritually beneficial for both husband and wife. Um, he also, just to sort of connect this to our, our earlier discussion, says that the English government has um, sort of drifted from biblical allowances for divorce, that uh, Jesus, as we mentioned, makes space for um, uh a fairly progressive for his time uh, space for women to seek divorces as well. Milton says uh, the English government has gone away from this, has become sort of even more patriarchal and oppressive than um, some of the, the Pharisees that Jesus rebukes and that they should uh, protect women more. So if you want to realize that the uh, the sort of murky waters that we went through tonight have existed for a really long time. Uh, check out Milton's Doctrine and Discipline of Divorce. Thanks, Victoria. I, I my my recommendation tonight is I think um, a it's it's focused in a slightly different direction. Just in thinking about um, the different texts we were going to look at about divorce, and um, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about tonight has been very focused on. Um, the moment of divorce or, or reasons for divorce. But uh, I found a, a piece that I was going to recommend that's a, that's more about the aftermath, um, which we talked a little bit about that when we talked some more personal stuff at the beginning. But uh, the what I'm recommending tonight is actually a blog post by um, 
one of my perennial favorites, Jen Wilkin. We've mentioned Jen Wilkin many times on the podcast, but she has a wonderful post from her own personal blog called Hope for the Broken Home, where she kind of talks about some of her personal history of, of being a child of divorce and, um, and that how, despite that kind of personal background that she would still came out of those, that situation as a person with a high view of marriage and that, um, that it's something to be, um, to be treasured and, and kind of how she has, has been, um, still blessed by God throughout the kind of, that kind of personal history. And I, I thought it was really powerful. And so we'll, we'll link that on the, on the, uh, show notes too. And, uh, I think that's it for tonight. Listeners, thank you for hanging with us through a discussion of what is often a difficult topic, but as we've said tonight, something that rarely gets press, um, at least from the pulpit in church. That was a very mixed metaphor, but um, (laughs) something that doesn't get talked about a lot, and we wanted to give it some attention because uh, it affects our lives of faith. It, It is a Christian feminist issue then in that case, and so thank you so much for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. And we, we love to hear from you. Tonight's um, episode is a perfect example. Listeners, we absolutely do read your emails and um, love your suggestions for episodes. So if you have topic or reading recommendations for us, or if you just want to connect with us, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For the show notes for this episode and for other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Elizabeth Bremner is our intern. For Victoria Reynolds Farmer and Blake Miller, I'm Katie Grubbs. Be sure to tune in next week, uh, sorry, in two weeks for a discussion of the BBC series Call the Midwife. Until then, in essentials unity, in non essentials liberty, and in all things love.